Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton. On this week's podcast, we talk about the response of church leaders to the Syria airstrikes, whether the church suffers from a massive underemployment of its people, and Adam Beckett talks to us about plans for a new library at Lambeth Palace. If you don't subscribe to the Church Times, you can get 10 issues for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. And the 5th and 6th of May at Sarum College in Salisbury, we have the Church Times Festival of Poetry. Speakers include Malcolm Geitz, Mark Oakley and Rachel Mann. Go to churchtimes.co.uk to find out more and to buy tickets. Syrian church leaders have condemned the bombing of Syrian targets by Western forces as brutal aggression. But the Bishop of Coventry described the airstrikes as an impressive example of diplomatic energy and skill. Madden, you've been following this story very closely. I mean, it seems that there are quite different responses coming from certainly church leaders in Syria and those over here. I think certainly the responses from churches in Syria to date have all been firmly against any kind of military intervention. Um, And throughout the conflict, I think it's broadly true to say um, that they've been against the involvement of foreign powers and also tend to express concern about what might replace the Syrian government. For example, the the statement that we've got this week um, from the leaders of the Greek Orthodox Syrian Orthodox and Melkite Greek Catholic leaders not only condemns the strikes but expresses support for the Syrian government and the Syrian army and talks about the need to um, evict terrorism from Syria. And that's quite consistent with earlier statements that we've heard. Um, We've previously run articles in the Church Times where Syrian leaders have expressed real concern about opposition groups that the West is funding, um, casting doubt really on, on how moderate they are. Um, So the latest statement is really in line with what we've seen previously. And a lot of those leaders would say that that Christians are allowed to worship freely in Syria, um, that there's religious toleration, which there might not be under another regime or if if IS took over. That's also something that's been um, really emphasised by the Syrian government as the conflict has intensified, this idea that they are the protectors of religious diversity in Syria. Um, there's been um, prominent photo shoots of President Assad visiting Christian churches um, and definitely presenting himself as this very protective figure. Um, in the comments section, you'll see a piece by a former chaplain in Damascus, an Anglican priest, Stephen Griffith, uh, where I think he casts a really interesting light on mm. these statements, um, questions the extent to which the government truly has protected the Syrian church, highlights the complexity, so the difficult position in which Syrian church leaders find themselves but I think also raises the question of have they actually failed to condemn violence when it's come from the government. Yeah I mean Stephen Griffith writes that the churches in Syria are in captivity their leaders dare not criticise the government for fear of the consequences. And we have seen examples when Christian leaders have spoken out against the government so there was a Roman Catholic priest who um, met with opposition figures and he was um, summarily um, dismissed from Syria asked to leave the country so I think we have seen examples where Syrian Christian have criticised the government, the, the consequences of doing that. And also um, a former president of the um, Syrian National Coalition, the opposition group, was a Christian, George Sabra. So it's not true to say that no Christians have supported the opposition, um, but certainly I think as the conflict has intensified, there's been a real anxiety about what might replace um, President Assad um, sh- should his government fall. The main response over here coming from the Church of England seems to be from the Bishop of Coventry who speaks on Syria in the Lords. 
Yeah, so he's spoken consistently in the House of Lords, I guess, on behalf of the House of Bishops. Um, he's pushed really for a political solution. He's also told us in the past that he thinks that's impossible to achieve without cooperating with Russia and has suggested that there isn't really a viable opposition to replace um, the president currently. And so um, kind of arguing, as, as Britain has done in the past, that Assad would have to go before um, a political solution could be found, I, I think the Bishop of Coventry would disagree with that. He has described the strikes as an impressive example of diplomatic energy and skill, but goes on to say, will that same amount of energy and skill be deployed in trying to find a, a solution to the conflict? And perhaps suggesting that if we can um, cooperate with Russia militarily, why can't we do that around the table? Apparently there was a coordination where we said this is the area that we're going to strike. We've also got a piece by the Dean Emeritus of Durham, Michael Sadgrove, outlining why he's unsure about the legality of these strikes and the moral rightness. So he talks about the risk of collateral damage that had anyone been killed was Russian, things could have escalated very quickly. And, and criticises the Prime Minister very strongly for not going to Parliament before the strikes. We've also got Paul Vallely writing on it saying, if we leave decisions over war to Prime Ministers and Presidents, that requires us to trust our leaders. He says this is a diminishing commodity, particularly in the light of Iraq and President Trump. So a lot on Syria this week. I'm, I'm sure it's obviously an ongoing story that we'll keep tracking in the paper. Next, the Church of England suffers from a massive underemployment of its people, many of whom have never understood their vocation. So said the Bishop of Guildford, Andrew Watson. Madeline, what's this all about? This is a new campaign that's going to be launched on Sunday, which is Vocation Sunday. And uh, Ministry Division is encouraging all of the church's ministers, they can be lay and ordained, to hold at least one conversation a month about vocation, and it should be with someone different from yourself. So the idea is that um, research suggests that what generates more vocations is more conversations. So whether that's somebody saying, you know, have you considered ordination, to a conversation saying, um, you know, you seem to have a gift for youth work, have you thought about doing that? So it's really important, I think, that it comes across that it, this is not just about um, meeting this 50% target for more ordinance, it's also for lay people as well. And we've tried to focus that um, online this week as well, where we've got some um, examples of both a priest and a lay leader um, talking about how to engage their laity in this conversation. Is there a sense in which people often end up doing jobs or taking on roles in churches because they're sort of filling a gap or it's they're just asked to, to meet a new rather than it being a kind of proactive conversation about how to best use their gifts? Yeah, so this is what um, Kate Harrison, who's finishing her curacy at the moment, said to us, um, that she, reflecting on it, was quite conscious that perhaps these conversations happen when, you know, a post on a PCC is freed up or suddenly you need a new youth leader, rather than having a conversation that works the other way around to say, where are your gifts um, and, you know, what might you be being called to? Um, I also had a really interesting chat with Julia Hill, who is the new um, leader of um, lay ministries and development in the Diocese of Bath and Wells. Um, and she was saying that she remembers that when her husband started training for ordination, um, she felt herself kind of step back and think, well, this is the professional Christian now. And even though they'd both been really involved in the church, she had to give herself a bit of a talking to and say, just because he's going down this track um, doesn't mean that I'm um, sort of no longer needed. Is there a hint from Bishop Watson that clergy are a bit too focused on, you know, sermon preparation, other things that they need to do, not, yeah. not looking outwards enough to spot 
Yeah, so he says that um, it's kind of easy to, to be fo- so focused on emails or sermons that you don't give enough time to developing other people. He talks on the Church of England podcast, um, which you can find online, about how Jesus' model looked really different. It was all about multiplication. It was about empowering those around him. And so he's encouraging um, the Church of England to work on that multiplication principle. Some of his comments made me think of the experiences of Ministry Project, where they actually did a pie chart which showed what clergy spend their time on. And I remember seeing that quite a big chunk was actually on administration and quite small segments were um, around other things which you might think would be sort of really key parts of um, a priest's life. So I think it is also going to probably raise questions about whether clergy actually have the time to have these conversations. And I know that Setting God's People Free, which was the big report last year on lay leadership um, even suggested that clergy should actually have two days off a week um, because that would give them more time to um, spend time with with friends and engage with the um, with the world it would be interesting to see if we get letters from clergy saying this isn't really realistic given I've got to raise money to fix yeah the although I think we might also get letters saying you know I'm already doing this you know I, I can personally think of priests who do spend an enormous amount of time trying to encourage other people to um, take on roles or think about where their gifts are. So it could be that we get get letters saying that actually this is what we're already doing. Finally, Adam Beckett's just back from Lambeth Palace where there are plans afoot to build a brand new library. Yes, in the grounds of Lambeth Palace next to Lambeth Road, uh, I witnessed the Archbishop of Canterbury break the ground uh, on this new library that's being built. They're hoping it will be completed in uh, a couple of year, a couple of years time and will host Lambeth Palace's um, uh, amazing archives alongside um, a new seminar room and uh, a bit of a visitor centre and the the point of the whole project really as well as providing a new home for the archives, which is needed because um, a lot of them are damaged by pollution and uh, damp and things like that in the centuries-old buildings at Lambeth Palace. Also, the new centre is going to provide a place for the public to come into Lambeth Palace and make it more open, because I'm sure that, uh, while some of our listeners will realise that you can go to Lambeth Palace to see the library, um, the general public are probably... uh, a lot more unaware that you can go and go to the reading room and book a slot and take a look at some of their fascinating archives. It's been developed by uh, Lambeth Palace uh, and the Archbishop of Canterbury said he was very excited about it. The new library will look out over uh, Lambeth Road. It will have access from Lambeth Road and absolutely certainly it will have a beautiful um, exhibition hall uh, at the front uh, on the ground floor fully accessible in every way and we very much hope that that will be in constant use of people coming to see exhibitions and to enjoy it. I I feel personally very strongly and I know Declan uh, in charge of this feels there's no point in having these things if they're never seen. Why have them? And uh, if you just hide them away. And they do two things. They tell us a huge amount about the history of the nation particularly in the pre-Reformation period. And secondly, they testify to generation after generation who were disciples who loved and followed Jesus Christ. And that speaks volumes about the centrality of faith in the life of the nation over its history. Do you have a favourite piece of material in the archives that you're looking forward (laughs) to moving over to the new library? Well, I don't know them well enough. I have a number of favourite bits at the moment. 
Um, there's one or two, there's one particularly wacky thing, which is the gloves that Charles I wore on the scaffold, which he handed to his chaplain, who later became Archbishop of Canterbury. That's not my favourite bit. I think my, <laughs> my favourite bit is um, either some of the interesting modern correspondence of the 20th century, particularly Temple and, and around that time, but I, I, I just find particularly beautiful two things. One is Richard III's prayer book, that his book of hours that he had at uh, Bosworth. And the second is um, that when we have guests coming here, distinguished guests visiting, the library is brilliant. It's a sort of challenge we give them. We say, we've got so-and-so coming, so what can you bring out to show? Mm -hmm. So, for example, a couple of years ago, we had a very senior uh, Nigerian Pentecostal minister, and the library found from within its store the history of the Church of England's engagement with Nigeria in the 19th century, with photographs and letters, and, 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 and he was absolutely bowled over by this sense of where we come from and the links we had at the past. And so that gives you two aspects that really I enjoy. Declan Kelly, who is uh, the Church of England's head of uh, libraries and archives, uh, talked a bit about what the new building will actually look like and um, the front of it's going to be glass and so any passerby is going to be able to see straight through the building into the gardens uh, and so there's this real sense of openness about it. Um, and there's a brand new seminar room at the top uh, which will command views over Lambeth Palace and also the House of Parliament so you can really see church and state right there uh, which will be very interesting. And Declan I think showed you around a few of the archives they have. Yes, uh, I was fortunate enough to be allowed into the current library um, which is um, in one of the very old parts of Lambeth Palace. Um, you can really see the the impact that pollution and dirt just has on the, the, the quality of the books but um, he, he showed a copy of uh, the death warrant for Queen, Mary Queen of Scots signed by Elizabeth I, the only existing copy, uh, a copy of a, a 16th century book called um, Invicta in Veritas uh, which was written about the divorce of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, um, denouncing it, and it's it's actually Henry VIII's private copy, so he's annotated it saying, this is wrong, um, wow. I'm in the right here, uh, which obviously led to the creation of the Church of England, so this is the magnitude of the texts mm. they have there. Do, do we know roughly when the library's, this library's gonna be built and ready to be um, opened? They hope uh, for it to be ready in a couple of years' time. Um, they're starting work straight away. Um, if you walk along Lambeth Road, you'll notice that the hoarding's already up, um, so uh, work starts now. We can listen to Declan Kelly and Giles Manderbroat of the Lambeth Palace Library talking about some of the artefacts. Is McDermott Gospel? So this is from the 9th century from Ireland. It's an illuminated manuscript gospel. We're not wearing gloves because actually if you start turning pages of very old things like that wearing gloves, you're much more likely to risk damaging the item than if you simply do it with your clean hands. But Giles wants to say a little bit more about McDermott. Uh, well, uh, yes, yeah, and this is a, a gospel book that was made, or thought to have been made in the 9th century, uh, probably in Ireland, for uh, a, an Irish cleric called McDernan. It's a gospel book with four gospels. This is the opening of St Matthew's Gospel. And one of the extraordinary things about a book like this is that it was already uh, so significant that it was a diplomatic gift in the 10th century. Uh, and here you can see the inscription 
uh, relating to that gift and a later illumination. It's remarkable also because this binding is a uh, 16th century binding of Matthew Parker, who was the first Archbishop of Canterbury under Queen Elizabeth and had a fantastic library here at Lambeth. And this is an extraordinary document because it's a document authorising regicide. It's a document uh, which Elizabeth was persuaded to sign for the execution of Mary Queen of Scots. Uh, Queen of Scotland, uh, pretender to the English throne, a claimant to the English throne. And one of the interesting things about this particular document is that whereas you'd expect there to be several copies in the state papers, there are no other copies. This is the only surviving one. And the reason for that was that Elizabeth wanted to ensure deniability of her involvement in the execution of her cousin. So uh, all the official copies went missing. This copy is the copy that was actually sent off to a man called Henry Gray, Earl of Kent, who was her jailer at Fotheringay Castle. And I rather like these folds that you can see in the paper, and I certainly like to think that Henry Gray folded it up, put it in his pocket, and uh, when he accompanied Mary Queen of Scots up to the scaffold in 1587, uh, it's an extraordinary survival. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.